0: Hello and welcome to the EM Insider podcast, the first in a new series featuring me, Chris Slowly, the editor of CityWise Selector, and our guest, our EM Insider, Rafael Cassin. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks very much. For those of you who don't know, could you just give us a brief history of who you are and what makes you the perfect person to be an EM Insider?
1: Well, that's very generous of you. Uh, I mean, I've, I managed Emerging Debt for many years, uh, had quite nice performance, uh, was very known for, for being an active manager. And taking uh, quite uh, opinionated uh, views and and positions, and I think that's that was the secret of my success.
0: And also, as part of your job, you've been traveling to a lot of these places. So You're also a man on the ground, so to speak.
1: Yes, I like to go everywhere. Uh, like most of us, uh, it, you know, the winter in, in the UK is a little bit a little bit cold, um, and and I like you know I like to understand cultures and all of that. And in fact, in the monthly piece that we do, I try to focus on the themes that are most important, that are, let's say, on the limelight, rather than be a boring benchmark tracker. Well, hopefully, this will add to that as well. So we are
0: aiming to do these on a monthly basis, so we hope that you enjoy them and you continue to listen. And with that, we may as well get going. So to give us an overview, I suppose, as the EM Insider,
1: what is the EM story at the moment? Well, we are... In a very interesting moment uh, in markets in general, uh, because we have quite a lot of complacency, uh, especially in the U.S. equity market, uh, we've got a global situation where I would say the only country that's really growing aggressively uh, and consistently is the U.S., albeit not, not at a super pace. Uh, we've got China, which is at the moment going through the issue with uh, coronavirus, but it will turn around and you know, start uh, uh, pulling out 6% numbers again. Uh, and the rest of the world is, I would say, in a standstill. Uh, not much happening. So it's very good for the dollar, good for hard currency and debt. Uh, for local currency, it's more volatile. And at the moment, most most large currencies are collapsing. I mean, the Brazilian real has gone to 439 last night. Uh, Turkish lira, you know, suddenly it's not that interesting anymore. Uh, so yeah, it's it's an attractive market, uh, I, I would say in the, on the hard currency side, and I, I would compare it to what some people would call would call goldilocks, right, where we have very low U.S. interest rates, uh, which helps debt, and, and all of these emerging countries offer interesting, uh, debt interesting interesting uh, rate levels, so it's attractive for investors.
0: In our previous discussions, we've, we have moved across the local and the hard element of things. And I think the last time we sat down, there was a big case for blend. Is there still a case for blend?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's, at least in my case, we have always looked at markets as opportunity sets, right? So car currency, local currency, and corporate. And... We, we tended to focus on whichever was the most interesting and offer the best reward for clients, risk reward, you know, let's add that. Um, and, I, and I would say that these days, that's, that's very pronounced. Um, hard currency looks interesting, but if you are a complete manager, you have to be able to go or dip into local currency whenever it is attractive. And there always are opportunities. And corporates, because there are lots of interesting corporates that offer value. So, so blend is the is the way to go, uh, with the flexibility for your manager to take that choice.
0: Talking about flexibility, should we dig into some of the actual flexible options that are out there? We were going to talk about Argentina. They've got a new regime, which is sounds very similar to the previous, but one regime has much changed. And what's going to happen next?
1: Yeah, Argentina is uh, you know it's always bringing us uh, uh, excitement, right? Uh, we have this new government. Uh, remember, let's go back to Mexico when López Obrador won the election. And he won it with a slightly or exaggerated left-wing approach, a little bit like a Bernie Sanders in Mexico. Yeah. And um, and But then when, when it came to manage, just like Lula also in Brazil, he realized that there were practicalities that you couldn't avoid. Uh, and, and I think... The Argentinian government is realizing that, but it also needs to restructure. Uh, The IMF came out yesterday uh, with a comment that private debtors or creditors are going to have to accept some decent level of, of, or reasonable level of restructuring or write-off. I think at some point it will happen, and it will probably happen to a level that is more palatable to investors than in the old, the previous restructuring. Um, so it might be we don't know yet, right? They're they're beginning uh, to bring out uh, ideas. Uh, it might be if the government doesn't take a very academic point of view uh, that we have a, a positive outcome for the restructuring, because bonds now are trading in the forties or fifties, mostly you know between the two, and well that's that's okay. You know if you if you think about. Uh, the market coming out with a 40% write-off, which would help Argentina, uh, then a lot of investors might even take that as a as a positive, and, and it could be a positive story, but we need to see and follow in the next few weeks. With that, do you think people
0: are more positive now than they were perhaps under um, Christina? Is, has the story changed so much since then? Did Macri
1: do good things? Has this been a whole about term with the new regime? Yeah, Macri had a very good economic team. I happen to to know a couple of the guys, uh, but I, I think that that he wasn't able to do what he set out to do in the beginning. He ended up boring too much, and and I think it all comes back to to the issue of what people in the country want. So if Argentinians turn around and say, "Well, we don't want austerity, and we're going to vote you out," a president is unable to do what he should do, and I think that that's what happened during the Macri years. He tried. To bring austerity, and people just said enough, and they brought well, they brought Cristina and, and Alberto Fernández, um, which I actually don't think is the right solution, but it might turn out that it 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 turns out better than people thought. So we we, we still have to see. There are challenges across that whole region. We Brazil,
0: I know it's very close to your heart. We've seen a regime change there as well in recent years, for better or worse. There have been challenges. Pension reforms came through, were being pushed through, and we've seen uh, the Amazon fires, we've seen a lot of focus on the Brazilian debt story as a result. Where do we stand on that at the moment? Is it somewhere people should be?
1: Well, I am a little bit uh, of a difficult person to ask that question, because I only invested in Brazil once in my professional career, and that was in in 2002, when C-bonds hit 48 in price, and Lula became elected. Uh, and the reason I have this negative bias, and, and I guess, you know, I, I sometimes worry about when I go back to Brazil, because, you know, some of my friends want to stab me, <laughs> um, is I, I, you know, it's, it's the home country bias, right? Um, but it is the truth. Uh, we have lots of corruption. We have lots of, uh, of violence. Uh, just now, the police in, the nor- in one of the northern states has decided to go on strike, uh, and so they're having a rebellion, if you can call that. Uh, they're having to send the military over to take care of it. Um, it's, a, it's a very large country uh, where I, I think a dictatorship, and this may not be the most politically correct thing to say, but a dictatorship worked very well um, because it centralized the economy. And I'm not in favor of it, but I'm, I also think that a more centralized economy would have been better, or a political system. So they want the, they want their cake, they want to eat it too. Uh, a very similar, a very funny expression in Brazil is they, everybody wants to die, but uh, go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And, and so, okay, what does it all uh, come to? Brazil has a debt to GDP of around 80% these days. Um, They have $350 billion in reserves. It's great, but I don't know what it's there for. Uh, Maybe it's to make sure that investors don't pull out. The finance minister, economy minister, is well-trained in Chicago, but he hasn't been able to come up with anything very significant. They've come up with a pension reform, which over a 10-year period is going to be interesting and useful, but maybe not as much as we would have wanted it sure. to be. So we have a, a, a giant uh, a cruise ship that is not really moving anywhere. The economy isn't growing much. Um, of course, when you talk to Brazilians, they're always super optimistic. Uh, but the reality is that as an investment, I worry about it because I don't see, you know, especially in terms of ESG, People talk about you. Well, that use. was something
0: we were going to come on to, wasn't it? Because um, we had a story last year when Nordea, we, we did a piece where we looked at the Amazon fires. We said, is there a case for doing something about this from an ESG perspective if they're not looking after the environment, if they're not doing the right social thing, if the governance of it isn't correct? And Nordea's head of EMD quarantined all the bonds, said he's not investing anything. The Brazilian embassy then invited him out to go and talk about it. As far as I know, that hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. But it shows that some people are taking action on that. But do you think more needs to be
1: done on that? Well, I think the issue has to come from the, top, from the government. But this is the problem that I mentioned before. The government in Brazil is very fractioned. So you have the president who has just recently left his own party. Uh, then you've got a multitude of parties uh, in the Senate and the Congress, and they're all fighting for, for something. So we don't have a, like here in the UK, you've got either you're conservative or labor. And okay, if you're liberal Democrat, you know, it's a small percentage. But, uh, but I mean, you've, you've got to be with those two. Otherwise, you just don't get anywhere. But Brazil's much more splintered. There are at, at least five to 10 uh, uh, parties. And they don't get anywhere because everyone, everybody wants a piece of the action. So they never come up with a centralized policy that people follow. So like, for example, the police. I mean, I could never imagine here in the UK, the police go on strike because they're not getting paid. You know, they probably would have a political discussion, you know, a, a friendly discussion. And when you've got that, you start to think about, well, what happens when the police are not around protecting people? And there are lots of criminals in Brazil, uh, like everywhere, but you know, they do things there. So I would say that that and the, the issue of ESG, where does that fit in? If, you, if you're central government and you don't actually push the states to go and protect the Amazon, they won't do it. Yeah. You know, they're worried about their own pockets. So I would say that any, any manager of emerging debt who has investments in Brazil and calls himself an ESG compliant manager uh, would really be hard pressed to convince me uh, of why he's really invested in Brazil. and there, but, but that is interesting. It would fit into a bunch of other countries. So I think that the way ESG at the moment is coming through, at least on the emerging side, yeah. is that there is quite a nice effort on the corporate side. But on the sovereign side, uh, you, you would have the issue of ESG or SRI. And and those two at some point have to be sorted out. At the moment, it just looks like most managers are doing a very nice uh, uh, marketing effort. Everybody talks about ESG. They're they're hiring new guys to do ESG every day, and I don't know where they come from, you know, and what their credentials are. Um, and maybe some of them are good, but but I but they don't convince me when I when I read their stuff. It it's like okay, I have a course in ESG, and I'm thinking well. It's not really that way. You know, it's more complex. Well, I had a
0: really interesting call this week with Rajiv Jain, who used to be at Vontabel, now runs his own boutique. He was the head of equity there, who was the CIO. Um, He hired investigative journalists to be his ESG analysts, because he said, you can't get an analyst and tell them you're now an ESG analyst. They are an analyst. You need a different mindset. In fact, one of them is actually a former CityWire employee who's ended up in a really roundabout way working for him. But we hear this a lot. We hear this idea that retrofitting ESG onto your existing analyst structure doesn't make sense. But also, we are also hearing the elements of greenwashing of people suddenly having credentials that aren't particularly easy to prove. So that creates huge problems.
1: Uh, and opportunities, right? So so I, I would say that the industry, instead of focusing on making money, and this is an issue that I've talked about for, for months and months, if you look at the, the managers who call themselves active they're not really outperforming the indices by much. So for investors, you might as well buy an ETF because your, your fund manager will beat the index one month, but then he won't beat it for the next three. And if you're lucky for the year and if you follow the year, he will beat it and he'll say that he won the award. right? So I, I would say that that's, the, that's very pressing. And, and instead of just claiming you've got the ESG credentials, I think it, the ESG issue is much more complex.
0: Yeah. OK, well, moving on slightly from that to an issue, I'm just going to skip down the agenda slightly to a governance issue, a big governance issue, Lebanon. We've seen change there. The week we're recording, so it's the week, uh, it's February 21st today, I think. So this might go out slightly after that. But I saw this morning Lebanon's yield has gone through a 1,000%. Can you explain why that's happened? Is that worth looking at as an investor?
1: Yeah, it fits, it fits very well with the issue of the market being interesting this year, uh, and there being a few opportunities, and Lebanon is one of them. Uh, I have a friend who called me and suggested I buy Lebanon uh, when bonds were trading at 80. And he did that when they were at 60, when they were at 50, right. and now they're trading near 30. And I think the issue there is very similar to what happened in the Arab Spring. And, and if I could summarize, I'd say just that the politicians and a few of people who were involved with the politicians managed to skim off quite a lot of money from the government over the last 20, 30 years. They were running the country and benefiting from it. You know, Lebanon is, is, is quite a dynamic uh, country. People are global. And... They, they can see what's happening all over the world, uh, and they know uh, that, that politicians have been doing the wrong thing. So now the issue we have is there's going to be a bond maturing in March, and they, the, there's the important question, well, there are a few important questions. First, will they pay for that bond, or are they going to propose some kind of restructuring? Will they have support from neighboring Arab countries? And which will be the conditions attached to that. Um, and the I think the the you know the, the the more the last kind of really important one is what is gonna happen with the people on the streets? They demonstrated for a while, protests, and that led to a government of people who are not politicians, but who are friends of the politicians. They're academics, but what I'm hearing from most people is that. They are not going to come up with a solution that's going to hurt the political class. Sure. So I would imagine that at some point things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, I'm. Not, I wouldn't jump in yet. I would watch it. Because do, you think, do you think there could be a chance in the near future? But once you got more clarity on restructuring, for example. Uh, at some point, yes. Remember that Lebanon basically imports almost everything, and and so and it, it's a dollarized economy these days. So it it will require a a drastic drastic measures rather than just a tw- tweaks as they have been doing. So I would say I wouldn't jump in yet uh, if, you ha- if you gave me a choice between Argentina and Lebanon, I'd probably go with Argentina first. Uh, but I would say that you have to keep looking at Lebanon because at some point it will be interesting.
0: Where are you investing at the moment then in your column that you filed for this month that hasn't come out yet? You ended on a note. Africa could be an interesting opportunity. Are oh, you putting your own money to work there?
1: Yeah, well, I, I love Africa. I've been I've been investing in Africa PA for the last almost a year. Uh, I bought Nigeria. Uh, they have oil, but they have other things. They're they dynamic economy. Uh, Ghana is very interesting. Uh, in fact, those those re- returns on those have actually been much superior from you know, than than I expected. Um, and so I, you know, I like the concept. You still have to be very selective about what you buy. Remember, there are over seventy countries in the N, in the M B Global, right? And so you you really could pick a few. I think you could even start looking at Puerto Rico, which we won't get into that now. Um, and you have, for example, another interesting point which we didn't talk about. I, I mean, I've said I love Africa, so let's just move sideways quickly. <laughs> uh, there's another interesting country that we haven't talked about. Uh, which is Venezuela. Of course. Venezuela defaulted in 2017. So we're now reaching roughly two years. And nothing really has happened. They haven't moved anywhere. The sanctions that Trump has come up with were ineffective. Uh, He's now come up with sanctions on a trading arm of Rosneft. So he's now realizing that in Venezuela, they're taking the oil, passing it on through the Russians, and continuing to live happily and squeeze the population. They're also doing that on the gold side. I've, I've somehow got involved with people you know, trying to reach me to sell me gold uh, from in the from north. From Venezuela? It, it showed up in the north of Brazil. So somebody came up and said, well, we have a nice project for you. Would you like to invest in it? It's gold coming from the north of Brazil, which happens to be right across the border from Venezuela. And they have oil, uh, sorry, they have uh, gold. And the Venezuelans need money. So it's very easy. You sell your gold, the Russians take it away. And I would imagine that we probably would need to have another Bay of Pigs, which at some point might be more palatable. I think so far, Trump has been dealing with other issues that he thinks are better for him, maybe even on a political level, you know, or he thinks are better for the country. The issues that he's had, he feels he's had to tackle first. But, I mean, if he's a real state, statesman and, and he, you know, he's going to take the Monroe Doctrine and he's going to just realize, tell the Russians, look, Venny is right here around the corner and we're going to take care of it. Um, because once he does that, bonds are paralyzed. Yeah. Nobody's trading them. They, they, have, they still have a lot of oil. And so it could be that Venny is a surprise. The, the, the issue is we don't know when it could happen. But I understand that there are people who are already preparing themselves to be involved in it. so
0: Well, I spoke to um, Thomas de Labre, H2O Asset Management, so Bruno Kras, um, we did a piece last week where he looked at, he's got a very minor position in Venezuela, but he said you're paying to wait, but that wait could be very lucrative. If it does pay off, it's a very small position, but you could get a very good boost if those, that scenario that you said just plays out in any way or the oil price rebounds in a meaningful way, then there could be positivity there as well.
1: Yeah, I like oil at these levels. You know, we were talking about it earlier. I mean, 58 on Brent. Um, I think that that's reasonable. Uh, We, I mean, it's it's not going to go to 150, uh, but I think the issues relating to cars, electric cars, and unless you know Elon Musk is able to create some fantastic battery. Uh, I'm not an expert in engines, but, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and YouTube videos. And, you know, I see a lot of young people saying, well, it's not really likely that, that car companies are going to spend a lot or that much on or sufficiently on electric cars uh, because their client base who will be buying that is quite small. They would rather create something like a Euro 6 emission uh, where they they are compliant, and that will be good for a lot of their client base. So I think we will we'll still have oil for a while, and so eventually we'll come back up. I mean, remember the world economy at the, these days is at a standstill. Only the U.S. is really chugging along. Yeah. When when all of these emerging countries start to plug back up, you know, in the production line, we'll we'll see something happening. I believe, and that's good for Venu. Okay. Well, I think you have shown your expertise. I think this has been a great
0: start. Hopefully, we will be many more. We'll be back next month for the next one. Thank you very much, Raphael. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's I'm looking forward to Excellent. And um, if you want to subscribe, we'll be on CityWire podcast. We'll be on Spotify. We'll be on uh, iTunes as well, I think. Does iTunes still exist? <phone rings>